Man, what an amazing opportunity to share uh, God's Word uh, with you this morning. So thank you for gathering with us online and as well on campus. Uh, before we turn to uh, our message for this morning to God's Word, uh, let us pray. Uh, Lord, again, we are thankful uh, to be in the very presence of the Lord uh, through the Spirit of God, Lord, as we come under the very Word of God. Uh, Lord, I pray that we come to it in humble faith. Lord, solely dependent on you and only your work in and through us. Lord, we do praise you uh, for an opportunity through Love God Serve to uh, minister to the needs within our local body as well as our community around us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you remind us each and every day, uh, just like Sunday morning, uh, worship is not an event we attend. Worship is a way of life. And so, Lord, uh, let the initiative of Love God Serve be Uh, not just for a a day or a weekend or a month, uh, but Lord, let us leverage everything that you have given to us and done in us and through us for your glory and honor and the good around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew 27, uh, Matthew 27, if you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 925, 925, we'll specifically be looking at verses 45 and 46 uh, this morning in Matthew 27. And we're continuing our sermon series entitled Words from the Cross. Uh, This morning we are going to look at uh, the phrase that Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A little bit of the context building up into this moment. uh, After Jesus was arrested uh, on the early, early, early morning hours, more than likely on Good Friday morning, probably somewhere between the hours of midnight or 12 a.m. and 2 a.m., uh, Jesus uh, is uh, interrogated for roughly uh, six hours uh, before the chief priests and also the Roman officials. And it's during this uh, interrogation where accusations are thrown uh, the way that the, ju- the judicial process would have been normally handled was not handled that way. They were out to get Jesus, if you will. Everything was set on uh, punishing Jesus. And so we know that he was mocked, uh, he was whipped, scourged on multiple occasions. Uh, he had a crown of thorns thrusted on his head. Uh, he was stripped naked of human dignity and displayed on a cross. The scripture reminds us in Matthew 20, uh, Ma- I'm sorry, Mark 15, 25, that that crucifixion began on the third hour in the Jewish timeline. That would be uh, around 9 a.m. on that Good Friday morning. And during that third hour and the sixth hour, during the time frame between 9 a.m. and noon, 12 p.m., Jesus says three things that we've already looked at. Uh, the first one was a word of forgiveness. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 23, 34, the first phrase, the first saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. The second word that he utters from the cross is a word considering salvation. To the criminal that received, surrendered his life to Jesus, he says this in Luke 23, 43, today you will be with me in paradise. And then last week we looked at that third saying, that third word from the cross, and it was a word of affection while Jesus is on that cross even in the midst of that pain and that agony and all those things, he has consideration uh, for Mary and his disciple, John. And he says in John 19, 26 and 27, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the apostle John, Behold your mother. And as we turn our attention this morning to that fourth saying that Jesus spoke from the cross, 
Uh, the time frame has now changed. We're no longer in that 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. time frame. We are now in that 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. time frame. And the question is, uh, what happens uh, during the hours of 12 and 3? Because there is a break. The last words that we looked at last week would have been before noon. And then the fourth saying that we're going to study this morning starts at 3 p.m. So what happens in that three-hour period? What happens between the third saying and the fourth saying? And it's in this saying that Jesus speaks not a word of forgiveness, not a word of salvation, not a word of affection, but a word of great agony. The scripture says in verses 45 and 46, these words, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a question that Jesus proposes to his father. What an amazing question. After being on the cross now for six hours in unimaginable agony, Jesus musters up not just enough strength, but enough breath to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we see this question, when we hear this question, we need to understand that when Jesus asked this question, he's not asking this question to his father in a way of unbelief. Jesus knows exactly that this moment has occurred. He knows why it's occurred. This has not caught him off guard. So it's not a question of unbelief. He's not saying, my God, my God, why are you doing this to me? Jesus, throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, multiple times, he foretells, he, uh, with great prophecy and great accuracy, he, he tells his disciples over and over and over again that this hour is coming. In one of those occasions, Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23, the scripture says, As they, speaking of the disciples, were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And the scripture says, and they were greatly distressed. This is actually the second time in Matthew's account of the gospel that Jesus foretells of that crucifixion to come. In fact, the closer that Jesus gets to the cross, uh, the more he references the cross. Jesus did everything he could to prepare his disciples for this very moment. So this uh, cry, this question of agony, is not a cry or a question of agony in the form of unbelief, but it is very much real. And so this morning, let's look at four aspects of the agony that uh, Jesus faced on the cross. At least, there's at least four. We're going to only look at four uh, this morning. The first one is this, the physical agony. The physical agony. The physical agony that Jesus experienced on the cross is beyond our words, right? It's beyond our full comprehension. Not just the physical agony of the cross, but the physical agony of being whipped and scourged multiple times beyond recognition. And here's Jesus nailed to the old rugged cross. Approximately six hours he's been nailed to that particular cross. The physical agony that Jesus suffered was real. But not only real, but it was prophesied by King David himself roughly a thousand years before this very moment. I would encourage you, this week, this holy week, read three chapters specifically in the psalm. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. What an amazing, amazing picture of our shepherd king and how he suffered and how he shepherds and how he is going to return again. What an amazing... So I would just encourage you, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. 
In Psalm 22, uh, roughly a thousand years before the events that we are studying this morning, the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, through the Holy Spirit, David prophesies about these very moments. He talks about the physical agony of Christ. In Psalm 22, uh, verses 14 through 18, the scripture says this, I, and it's a referencing Jesus, I am poured out like water. In other words, the very life of Jesus is draining away, being poured out, fading away. And he says, all my bones are out of joint. Uh, the, The crucifixion, the hanging on the cross creates an elongating of the body. In other words, your joints are pulled beyond the capacity that they were meant to be pulled, stretched out. The scripture says, my heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. In other words, every breath that Jesus took got harder and harder and harder to the point that the inner core of his body began to fill up with fluid. Fluid so great that it, it began to feel like a burning sensation. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a posture. That postured word is a clay pot that has been baked in order to be hardened. The scripture says, and my tongue sticks uh, to my draws. The Savior on the cross, is, he's becoming dehydrated. Uh, that shock is beginning to set in. The scripture says, you lay on me the dust of death. Remember the curse that was given uh, in Genesis 3 when Adam sinned? Well, the scripture says that from the dust you came to the dust you will return. And here is Jesus on the verge of death. And those same words are spoken over him. And then the shame that Jesus Uh, experienced in that physical agony. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. In other words, Jesus is not surrounded by all his friends, right? He's surrounded by those who are scoffing at him, mocking him, haters of him, those who abuse him. Scripture says, they have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. And this is important because prophetically in Psalm 34 verse 20, the scripture says that not one bone of Jesus would be broken. And guess what? Though his bones were stretched, those joints stretched, the bones were not broken. The scripture says, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So you have this picture of physical agony, and you have uh, these, these uh, like a herd of lions uh, crouching down behind grass, looking to kill the weak person. The soldiers are... They've stripped Jesus naked. They forced thorns on his head, a spear into his side. They spit on his face. They mock him. They drove nails into his hands and feet. Jesus is there naked on the cross on full display. And here are the soldiers gambling over his very clothing, which was prophesied and fulfilled in Matthew 27 and in John 19. So you have this physical agony. Uh, But not only that, we have this emotional agony that Jesus is experiencing Again, we can't fully comprehend the physical agony that Jesus uh, experienced. Hollywood does no justice, right? Uh, But also that emotional agony. And again, we we cannot fully comprehend the emotional agony that Jesus experienced in that moment. And the fact is that that emotional agony wasn't something about the future, right? You know, oftentimes we we get uh, uh, emotionally stirred up, if you will, anxious, if you will, because of something that may occur in the future, right? For Jesus, this is a present reality. This is based on his current circumstances. And Jesus is nailed to the cross. That physical agony is already setting in. That dignity has been stripped. But in the midst of that, there's great emotional agony. And the psalmist says it like this in Psalm 22, uh, verses 6 through 8. He says, but I am a worm and not a man. In other words, the great I am has been made lower, not just to, not just to the angels. He has come as a man in the flesh, right? 
But not just that, he's lower than the beast. He's, he's actually a, a worm. And you have this intensity of inward conflict beyond words. He's been so devalued on the cross, seen as insignificant to many. And the scripture says that he is scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths, uh, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And what is Jesus, what do they say to Jesus? Listen to this phrase. This is what they're saying to him. This is the mocking that they're giving to him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is what we saw in Luke 23, verse 35. Remember, you say you are the son of God. Remember the criminal who said you you said you are the son of God. You've saved others. Why don't you save yourself? The emotional agony beyond words. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus understands the character of the Father. He says in verse 9, Yet you, speaking of the Father, are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Jesus says, Father, I have seen your faithfulness to me from my entrance into this world, this earth, as a man, and and how I've grown from an infant to an adult. And then verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Are you getting a sense of that emotional agony? Father, my trouble seems to be so near, but you seem to be so far away. I need you to be near to me. The inner cries of a sinless Savior in the hands of the wicked. Listen to the mocking again. Psalm 22, verses 12 through 13. The scripture says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening, ravening and roaring lion. Uh, Bashan is, is a, a beautiful fertile land uh, in uh, the Near East, uh, near, in northern Israel specifically. And in that particular fertile land of Bashan, they were known, greatly known for, uh, I don't know what the proper, I'm not a, uh, a cattle man, so what, I, I don't think they harvest animals. What is the word I'm looking for? I'm not sure. But they grow, they grow, they grow these animals that, that are strong and powerful. They, they have just brutal strength. And that's the picture that we see here is that, that these bulls of Bashan, the ravening and roaring lion, they represent who? The people that are around them. The priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Roman rulers that are around them. And as Jesus is growing weaker and weaker and weaker, it seems that those who surround him are growing stronger and stronger and stronger. The mental and emotional agony that Jesus is experiencing. And yet in the midst of that, we recognize that Jesus truly does identify with us. He knows what it's like to be bullied, to be opposed, to be criticized, to be mocked, to be crushed. And so we're beginning to get a picture of the emotional agony that Jesus felt on the cross. Third, the spiritual agony. The spiritual agony. We see this in Matthew 27, verse 45. This is uh, where we begin, really, our study this morning. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So during the Passover feast or week this would not uh this without question would have been the brightest time of the day right without question uh, but on this particular day the scripture says that god brought about immediate darkness immediate darkness and i love how luke uh, has the detail here in luke 23 verses 44 through 45 it says and it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour and i love verse 45 while the sun's light failed right so from 12 to 3 god turned out the lights right he just flipped them off right that's pretty amazing to me uh and we have to understand that this this darkness the land could refer to a particular region or it could uh refer to the entire earth and i i honestly believe that 
the entire earth was dark. The entire earth was silent. The word dark here not only refers to the inability to see, but it's a darkness so great that it can actually be felt. You ever experienced that before? Darkness so great that you can actually feel it. Uh, so we have not only the, the mystery of the physical agony that Jesus experienced, the, the emotional agony that he experienced, but now uh, we're beginning to see this spiritual agony that he experienced. Uh, think about this. At the birth of Jesus, the midnight sky was as bright as it could be, right? And now here you are at midday when the sun, the sun should be shining the brightest and it is dark as all get out, right? Pitch black. Now, why the darkness? Well, darkness uh, oftentimes refers to uh, God's judgment. Uh, we see this in Amos 8, uh, Micah 3, Revelation 14. Uh, one of the most notable places that we see this is in Exodus chapter 10. Uh, during Exodus chapter 10, the, that ninth plague, uh, the scripture says that during that ninth plague, that darkness uh, went over the, the land of Egypt for three days, right? And then when that, that darkness was lifted, the tenth plague is enacted, and that tenth plague is what? The death of the firstborn during that time of Passover, right? Now we have Jesus, God's firstborn, during the Passover being lifted up on the cross, during the darkness of the day, and this too represents God's judgment, God's judgment over sin. Jesus on the cross during those three hours is going to experience the full weight and wrath of God because of our sin. You know, Jesus speaks of the wrath of God uh, shortly before this time of crucifixion uh, in Mark 14. Uh, the scripture says, and they, speaking of his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him uh, Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So this reference to the cup is the cup of God's wrath. For three hours, God brought the horrors of hell onto Jesus himself, his one and only son. So not only is there a physical agony, uh, emotional agony, but there is a spiritual agony. The very fact that on the cross, Jesus absorbed the full weight of guilt and shame because of sin. He experienced the full wrath of God. What is that horror of hell? At the very least, it's punishment without God's comfort. Punishment without God's compassion. Punishment without God's sympathy. Punishment without God's relief. Punishment without God's love. That's just a taste of the horrors of hell. And this too was prophesied 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne. That idea of born means to be taken, to be lifted. He's borne our griefs, our sickness, our disease, and carried our sorrows, our suffering and pain, yet we esteemed, we accounted him as stricken, touched, smitten, attacked by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced, that is, he is wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds, with his stripes, with his blows, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, strapped on him, the iniquity, the guilt, the punishment of us all. So the darkness that is being felt on that particular day is not communicating in any way the absence of God, right? God was there. The darkness that is being felt is the presence of God in judgment. The full judgment, the full vengeance because of sin. The wrath of God cannot be denied or ignored. And that's important because sometimes we have this idea and these things get thrown around that, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Now, this is the God of the New Testament. The, old, the, the God of the Old Testament was one of wrath and anger and vengeance. And the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is all about love, right? 
No, there is one God that is communicated clearly from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And that is important for us to recognize. The wrath of God is holy and just. God's wrath is not uncontrollable passion. And I think that's our issue. We look at how man expresses wrath, and it's uncontrollable, right? That is not how God expresses wrath. It is holy, calculated justice towards sin, any and all sin. Not just the behavior, but the root itself. All sin is rebellion against God. It is, it is the law that has been broken, his law that has been broken. His authority has been rejected. His authority has been despised. Now, we don't know all the details of what occurred during that three-hour process, but we do know that Jesus literally exhausted the full wrath of God. He took the grunt of it, right? He took the grunt of it. It's almost like somebody asked you to come move some furniture, right? And you, you go over to their house and, and you f- pick up the couch and you realize, I feel like I'm doing all the work. You know, where are you at? I need your help right this, right? Jesus didn't need our help, right? Jesus took the full grunt of the wrath of God. God held nothing back. All of humanity was removed from the light of God and is in the shadow of that very moment that the wrath of God is poured out on his son. So the spiritual agony, but now the relational agony, the relational agony. Again, we can't, we can't even fathom, comprehend the relational agony that Jesus experienced in this moment. For three hours, the wrath of God poured out on the son of God. And you would think that when that three-hour period was done, the very thing that Jesus needs is relief and comfort and fellowship. But notice what happens in verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachnia, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken is a very strong word. It means to be abandoned, it means to be deserted, to be disowned, to be turned away from. And again, people want to candy coat the reality that Jesus was forsaken by his father. Some people will say that he wasn't truly forsaken. It's just symbolic, right? Listen, sin not only demands physical death, it also demands spiritual death, right? There is a separation from God. It's a cry of actual abandonment. Jesus didn't just feel abandoned. He actually experienced abandonment. The cry, my God, my God, isn't a cry against God. It's a cry to God. This is the only time that Jesus referred to his father as God, ever, right? That's important. He didn't call him Father. He referred to him as God. The fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken. The Father that once declared to the world that this is my Son who am I well pleased has now turned his back on his Son. Jesus had known great pain before, right? But he never, never once experienced the pain of separation. For the first time and the last time, there was separation between the Father and Son. doesn't mean that there wasn't unity within the Godhead. Jesus did not cease to be God on the cross. But there is a separation that has occurred. And again, we we cannot understand completely what that means. The mystery of God forsaking God. But we do get some hints. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. This forsaken Savior understands the character of his Father. Verses 3 through 5, the scripture says in Psalm 22, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus knows that the Father has heard the cries of his people in the past and he has delivered them. The people of God who were, guess what, stiff-necked, rebellious, oftentimes unfaithful. And Jesus, for the first time and the last time, 
is essentially saying, they've cried out to you, you delivered them. Lord, I have cried out to you, and I seem to be ignored. But here's the beauty of Jesus quoting specifically from Psalm 22 in the Hebrew language. When Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The key is in the exact word that is used for why. There's two primary words in the Hebrew that are used for the word uh, why. Uh, one word communicates a question of confusion based on uh, past events, right? You have something happening in your life, and you, you look back, and say, I, I'm not sure why this happened, right? I, don't, I can't explain it. So there, that, that's a question of why. But again, this is not a question of confusion, the other word that is used uh, for why uh, doesn't look back in confusion. It looks forward to purpose. Jesus on the cross uh, is crying out to his father, uh, not, why have you done this to me? But he's saying, God, show them the purpose of my suffering. Again, show the purpose of my suffering. And this is the beauty of the gospel. What is the purpose of Jesus' agony, suffering on the cross. There are many purposes, but two this morning. One, in Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied. In Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath all the way down to the bottom, right? The spiritual agony so that we could drink the cup of God's salvation. What an amazing exchange. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus stood in our place as a perfect substitute. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This idea of redemption means to pay off a debt. Uh, we owe the sin debt. Jesus stood in our place. He paid it for us. Uh, I love the fact that uh, Paul quotes here, uh, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Uh, he quotes Deuteronomy 21 and 23. And this is important because uh, that verse doesn't focus on the method of death. It, it focuses on what that death actually accomplishes. On the cross, the curse of God's wrath was put on Jesus. God's anger against sin was put on Jesus so that we would not have to experience it, right? The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus was charged with our guilt. Jesus was charged with our punishment. And on the cross, an amazing, glorious transaction occurred. Our unholiness has been exchanged for his righteousness. God's holiness demands punishment for our sin, and God's love saves us from our sin. What, what an amazing beauty of the cross. 1 John 4.10 says this, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the propitiation, the substitute for our sins. And it, this is the clear statement that we need to understand today. The clear statement is this. You are either under the curse or are you under Christ. That's it. That's your only two options. Uh, John 3.36 says it like this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, in other words, believe in the Son, shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God remains on him. If God spared not his own Son, he will not spare you if you do not receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Romans 2.5 says this, But because of your, hand, your hard and impotent, unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, They, those who do not trust in Jesus as their Savior, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So you're under the curse or you're under the cross of Christ. Because of the work of Christ and your faith in him, you are no longer 
storing up the wrath of God, it, but by God's grace, God is gifting you with a storehouse of grace, grace upon grace. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. What a beautiful, beautiful gift. Not a storehouse of wrath, but a storehouse of grace. In Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied. Second, in Christ, you are never forsaken. You are never forsaken. Because Jesus was forsaken, you will never be forsaken. Because Jesus took our hell at the cross, you will never have to experience one, one moment of that experience of hell. Because Jesus took the wrath of God, you will never, ever, ever experience one moment of the wrath of God. Jesus suffered our separation, so we would not have to. This is the great promise that we see in Scripture. In fact, you go back to Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. This is probably one that we, we remember part of the context. Uh, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not what? He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now put yourself in Joshua's shoes, right? This is the historical context of what's happening here in Deuteronomy 31. Joshua is, is getting ready to succeed the leadership of Moses, right? Moses, the one that God equipped and called to uh, deliver his people from slavery, uh, the one who he equipped and called to uh, have uh, God's people uh, cross over over the Red Sea. Uh, he's the one that uh, met with, uh, Moses met with God on Mount Sinai where God gave him the Ten Commandments. And so uh, you just have to imagine if you're Joshua and you're thinking, man, I got to step into this man's shoes. There's probably a lot of insecurity. There's probably a lot of things that are happening. And, and Joshua is being charged the commission to lead his people, God's people, into the promised land. And God promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will go, go before you. I will go with you. And I will go for you. And guess what? That same truth is declared over you and I today as the people of God. God promises to go before us, to go with us, and to go for us. The hope that God will never leave you or forsake you hinges on the fact that Jesus fully obeyed the Father's will for his life, and the Father actually heard his cry and delivered him. That's what I love about Psalm 22. Verse 19 through 24, it says this, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And something shifts at this point. The scripture says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised. He has not ignored or abhorred. He has not minimized the affliction. He has not minimized the suffering of the afflicted, the hurting. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. How do we know that the father heard the cries of his son? Resurrection Sunday. Jesus was resurrected from the grave. The father heard Jesus' cries and delivered him from death. Jesus was forsaken, that you may never be forsaken. He was abandoned, so that you would never be abandoned. No matter what, the stain of guilt has been removed. If you remember in Psalm 22, uh, the scripture refers to Jesus as what? A worm. A mere worm. Why a worm? That's a, that's a weird I am statement, right? Well, let me tell you about the beauty of this worm. Uh, in the Hebrew language, there were two specific words most commonly used for uh, worm. This Hebrew word specifically communicates the most valued, precious worm ever. It's called the scarlet worm. In the Near East, uh, the scarlet worm would have been used uh, to uh, get the most valuable, the most precious, dark, and rich uh, red color. 
Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, when the, the high priest uh, had that red robe that, that they would, he would wear, uh, that red robe was dyed from this particular scarlet worm. And what would happen is this, uh, the female worm uh, would only give birth once in her entire lifetime. And you'll understand why in just a moment. And what she would do is she would climb a tree, a piece of wood, and she would embed herself so deep into that wood so that the only thing that was showing was the shell on her back. And the only way that that uh, worm could be removed is you had to literally pull it off of that piece of wood. And when you pulled it off of that piece of wood, the body would actually be detached and the worm would die. And what would happen is uh, that female worm would embed herself into that piece of wood and she would hatch her babies or her larva, if you will. And uh, not only did that shell provide protection, uh, the mom herself literally gave up her life for those young babies. Uh, the babies feasted off her body, essentially. And that's why she only gave birth once in her lifetime, right? Uh, they would eat her to death. Now, every time, every time that occurred, when that mother's body was being crushed, a red dye would begin to flow out. So much so that that once red uh, worm uh, would be sucked so dry of that red blood that she would actually become white and the baby larva, the baby uh, worms, would go from white to red. What an amazing picture. What an amazing picture that we see at the cross. That God's one and only son, Jesus Christ, is being embedded into that piece of wood, that wooden tree, protecting us and pouring out his blood for us. That scarlet blood, so that in his death we would be able to experience life. His crimson blood washes away our sins as white as snow. What a beautiful picture. And here's the reality. I think when we consider the agony of Jesus, physical, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, some of us are there right now. Some of us are in the midst of a physical suffering, a, an emotional suffering, a uh, spiritual suffering, or a relational suffering. And, and we're questioning, if we pull all that back, we're questioning at times, is, is God truly satisfied? Will God truly not forsaken me? Listen, I know at times we're going to feel forsaken. I know at times we're going to feel like God is not truly satisfied. And it's in those moments that the scripture reminds us that regardless of how you feel, the truth says what? God is satisfied. And God will never forsake you. Romans 8 is a great picture to go to. When you think that God is not truly satisfied, Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus. Do you believe that today? Man, the great freedom of knowing that I am no longer under condemnation, but I have been set free by the blood of Christ. What about when we feel forsaken? Go to Romans 8. The scripture reminds us that we will always have the presence of God in our midst. Romans 8, 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No persecution will separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37 no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No, no power will separate us from the love of God. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, at the cross, there is great agony. Jesus experienced physical, emotional, spiritual, relational agony. But in Christ, we get to know 
with the great assurance that God is fully satisfied because of the work of Christ. And we also know because the Father did not forsake his Son ultimately, he will not forsake us either. When you hear the words that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the answer to that question your name? In other words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer for me personally is, I did it for Kevin Giordano. Can you answer that question with your name today? Can you say today that I have received Christ as my Lord and Savior? To walk every day, to know that he is fully satisfied in me because of the work of Christ. That the wrath of God has been satisfied, and because of the work of Christ and the deliverance that the Father did for him, my God, my God will never forsake me. He will never abandon me. Though I feel it, the truth is, it will never happen. I want to give us a moment to respond to the Lord this morning. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. What an amazing opportunity to do so. On this Palm Sunday of 2023, to recognize that Jesus Christ has gone before you. He has experienced all agony. He knows it full well. And in the place of that, he gives you precious promises. Satisfied, never forsaken. What an amazing gift to receive today. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you've already received Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you're walking through a time of agony and you're uh, possibly losing sight of the one who knows exactly where you're at. Whatever that agony is, will you give it to the Lord? Listen, I'm not saying that those circumstances are going to change, but I often think that our greatest need isn't the circumstances to change. Our greatest need is to feel the very presence of God in the midst of those circumstances. And this morning, you have an opportunity to experience the very presence of God even in the darkest places of your life. Whatever your decision is today, uh, let us sing to the Lord.